welcome to British Literature Before 1800, a podcast accompanying the course English 2610 at Utah Valley University. Today we're discussing several of Shakespeare's sonnets, particularly looking at themes of how does the form contribute to meaning, how does the poet control time, and how do you write a love song to someone who's not really as hot as maybe you thought they were going to be. So today we're going to be discussing Shakespeare's sonnets. We won't be discussing all of them because there are 154 Shakespearean sonnets and they were published in the 1609 quarto dedicated to a Mr. W.H. So the form of these poems breaks down like this. There are three quatrains, quatrains being four lines. So there are three quatrains and then at the end there is a rhyming couplet. They are written in iambic pentameter, and that rhythm of the iambic pentameter is one that we are very familiar with when it comes to Shakespeare. So that is where we have a soft stress, soft stress, soft stress, soft stress, soft stress. That's what iambic pentameter looks like. And it often mimics the sound of a heartbeat, right? The And the rest of the form is that it breaks down into an A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G rhyme scheme. One of the other things about the form here is that there is a volta between the third quatrain and the last rhyming couplet. And the volta here means turn. So when the poem ends on those last rhyming couplets, there's usually some sort of break in the poem. We've moved on to some sort of pithy kind of climax, or we are having some kind of sarcastic commentary, or something has changed or shifted in the mood. Now, why do I give you all this information about the form? Well, form is kind of everything with poetry, but it's because Shakespeare actually did a lot of innovation with the sonnet form. Prior to the publication of the sonnets, The kind of primary format for a sonnet was considered the Petrarchan or the Italian form, which comprised of an octave or a set of eight lines. Then we get the volta, and then we get a sestet, the last six lines. And what Shakespeare's sonnet form does is it creates those three different quatrains in which you can develop a theme in three different ways before you get to the volta or the last couplet. But it basically complicates the way that we thematically develop in our, in our poem. It's largely because of Shakespeare's innovations with the form that this sonnet form is actually called the Shakespearean sonnet, as opposed to the Italian or Petrarchan sonnet. By the time that he's publishing these sonnets in 1609, the sonnet has already kind of had its heyday. Like everybody, everybody's like, okay, sonnets were cool like a decade ago. Will, when are you going to let it go? So the fact that he is actually taking what's kind of a passe or slightly nostalgic poetic form and saying, I'm going to redo this. We, we get the idea that Shakespeare is actually doing some remix here. So he's not just innovating in the way that he breaks these things down into quatrains, but he also is being a lot more inventive with the subject matter of his materials. So he is being really, really inventive and self-aware of the fact that he is creating this new sonnet form. So in a lot of ways, he's actually being very meta. 
And what I mean by meta here is that he actually draws attention to the fact that he is, in fact, the poet writing the poem, and that the form and the poem itself is worth noticing. So when we start discussing the larger themes in the sonnets, it's worth pointing out that they're broken down into three different parts based on who the poet is addressing. So the first 126 poems are addressed to the fair youth. The second grouping is addressed to the dark lady. Um, This is from about sonnet 127 to 152. So the dark lady is another kind of love interest for the poet. And the third person who is addressed is the rival poet. There aren't nearly as many poems dedicated to the rival poet, but it's important to note that those are the three main characters that the poet addresses specifically. So now we're going to actually jump into the poems themselves. We will be discussing five poems specifically. So the first poem that we're going to discuss is Sonnet 18. And the reason I chose this one is not only is it considered one of the most famous of the poems, but it's also the one that demonstrates how much the poet is trying to play with the idea of time. So if you'll remember in our conversations about Beowulf and the Toyn and the idea that the Scop and Shanachi are able to immortalize people through their poetry, this is basically Shakespeare playing with that same theme. He overtly draws attention to the futureness of his poems on multiple occasions. We're going to talk about it specifically in Sonnet 18. So I want you to listen to Harriet Walter reading the last six lines of Sonnet 18, paying particular attention to its use of time and drawing attention to the way that the poem is creating time. But thy eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death boast thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. So you see in these lines the idea that the poet is very, very purposely saying, death can't claim you as long as this poem survives. This poem gives you life. And so when he says, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, he's saying it's not good enough. It's not eternal enough. And so while that's very overtly the theme of Sonnet 18, it's actually a very common theme to the larger narrative that's going on in all of his sonnets. The idea that the poet can control time and stop time and preserve time and give future time to the people that he cares about. Sonnet 116 is also playing with the idea of expanding time or playing with the time. But it also draws attention to the function of the poem in terms of preserving and proving a point. So we're going to listen to Juliet Stevenson read Sonnet 116. And I want you to pay attention to the use of time and the use of the poem. How does the poem function in creating meaning within the poem? Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. 
It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bended sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So you can see in these passages that it's not just that time isn't in control of love, but it's also that the poet is proving how powerful love is by explaining that really fascinating rhyming couplet at the end. He says, if this be error and upon me proved, right? He's setting up this logical fallacy here. If this is error and upon me proved, then I never writ, nor no man ever loved, but he did write. People have loved. So he's saying, obviously, I am correct. So we get the idea of time and preservation of time, but also I am the writer and therefore I get to control this universe and control the time that's given to each of these poems and each of these subjects. Also notice how in Sonnet 116, the Volta, that rhyming couplet, is the part where it does kind of really drive home the turn of the poem. So while it's been describing what love is in the first three quatrains, that last couplet, that volta and the couplet basically say, not only am I right, but I'm also going to mic drop right here. So that, that really, really strong turn and volta that happens within the form and structure and what that form and structure is capable of doing. Another example of the volta turning the story into something kind of more powerful is in Sonnet 138. 138 largely is talking about a a man who knows that the woman he's in a relationship with is cheating on him, but he's going to turn a blind eye to it. He's going to choose to be Mr. Brightside. Like I said, we're going to explicate that a whole lot more in class, but I wanted to demonstrate what the Volta can do and accomplish within this poem. Sonnet 138 starts with this couplet. When my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies. So that kind of sets up the larger narrative that's going to go on in the poem. But then when we get to the final couplet, we see how that Volta really takes on some additional kind of punchy and pithy commentary. So when the poet says, therefore I lie with her and she with me, and in our faults by lies we flattered be, He's wrapping it up, but he's also punning, right, on the idea of I lie with her. The fact that there's a sexual innuendo there, but also the idea of falsehood is also wrapped up in this kind of statement. This is what that rhyming couplet can do in that very sharp, incisive way of getting to the core of the poem. Sonnet 130 functions in a similar way in that it sets up the idea that my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. So the idea that, you know, describing your love in these really traditionally poetic ways is really not going to cut it for him. And he doesn't, he, he actually describes his love in really rather unflattering terms. But then when you get to that rhyming couplet at the very end, he writes, And yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any 
she be lied with false compare. Essentially saying, I'm not going to falsely flatter this person because she doesn't deserve that. She's better than that. Um, And so it sets up this very awkward kind of dialogue of like, "Mm, she's not so hot, but but to me, she's everything. Um, And it sets up this very, very uncomfortable way of looking at romance. But we see again how that rhyming couplet does so much heavy lifting for the Shakespearean sonnet. And when it comes to the poet's romantic relationships, Shakespeare's sonnets tend to expose the idea that binaries within gender and attraction are really quite flawed. So when he writes in his sonnets to the fair youth, there is this homoerotic element from the poet to the fair youth. The romantic tensions and the gender tensions that are within these sonnets is very tangible. So for example, in Sonnet 20, we get the idea that gender fluidity is actually very close to the surface. So here's a portion of Sonnet 20. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou, the master mistress of my passion. Now that's only the first couplet, but notice that it's kind of setting up this idea of you look like a woman, but you are the master mistress of my passion. The fact that master mistress can actually coexist coexist together is really quite fascinating. And it's something that we see throughout the majority of his poems. Now, the rest of Sonnet 20 is actually rather explicit in terms of sexual attraction, but it also is rather misogynistic in the way that it treats women um, and compares them disparagingly compared to the fair youth. Um, In fact, I was listening to Sir Patrick Stewart's Sonnet a Day series on Instagram. And if you're not following this, then I don't know what social media is for. Um, But Patrick Stewart actually has been reading all of these sonnets. But when it came to Sonnet 20, he actually starts out and he says, I'm not comfortable with the way that this sonnet describes and treats women. And I'm not going to read it and you can't make me. Um, And I heart Sir Patrick Stewart for so many reasons, but I love that he also put a lot of thought and effort into understanding the poem before he made a kind of decision about whether he was going to present that. But I do think that Sonnet 20 is at least worth discussing in terms of its gender stereotypes, as well as the way that it's playing with these binaries and saying, I don't think they work quite this way. So when it comes to wrapping up and thinking about adaptations for these sonnets, it's worth pointing out that there are some very wonderful series of adaptations out there that exist already in so many forms. Not just Sir Patrick Stewart's Sonnet a Day, where we have an actor taking the time to explicate and articulate these poems in a way that brings them to life. We also have musical adaptations. There's also dance performance. The sonnets lend themselves to so many different ways of adaptation, including updates, new language. One of the things that I also came across while preparing for this this podcast was the pop sonnets where they updated contemporary songs by like Taylor Swift and Beyonce and turned them into sonnets. This is all fair game. Like I said, we are going to be discussing a little bit more what I think is called the Mr. Brightside poem in class, which is where I kind of impose the idea of the killer's song, Mr. Brightside, onto Sonnet 138. 
All this is to say that we owe Shakespeare a rather large debt of gratitude when it comes to remixing the traditional love song. So throw your hat in the ring. Let's see what kind of mixed up Shakespearean love songs we can come up with. Thanks for listening to the podcast this week. I look forward to our discussions later on. Join me next week when we talk about Shakespeare's The Tempest, and we ask the all-important question of who taught Caliban how to curse like that? Miranda, was it you?